Hope you have your Bible with you, and if you do, grab it. Open it up to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to continue our study through the book of Ephesians. Chapter-wise, I did not count verses or anything like that, but chapter-wise, we have reached the uh, middle of the book already. Uh, I know sometimes you guys like to give me grief for how long we spend, but I think this seems like we're flying through the book, or, so I don't think it's going to take as long as uh, we have in, in other books, and maybe there's even more time we could, that could be spent. But we are uh, just moving past the halfway point, and in uh, many respects, there's also a shift, and I alluded to this last week, but there's a shift in uh, what uh, uh, the content of the letter or the intent of the letter. Now, it's always true, I'll, maybe I'll just make sure, maybe clarify, that, that shift is a shift from what I would call primarily dealing with theology things, primarily dealing with what we believe about God and Jesus and the church and those kind of things, who we are in Christ, and then uh, moving to primarily looking at how to live that out or apply that into our lives, the practical side of things. Now, I just want to be clear, as with almost all of Scripture, but certainly in this letter of Ephesians, uh, there's certainly application points in the first part of theology. We've covered some of those things, and there are certainly going to be uh, theology parts in the application. I mean, it, Paul can't help himself. We're going to run into a few of them today even, but Paul can't help himself when he, when he begins to write how to live this out. He's still continuing to sort of reinforce, hey, this is what we believe. I think, by the way, that's really healthy. I think it's one of the things that we as a church body should be in the habit of doing, is of, of being able to speak about what we believe and how that gets walked out, what we believe and how that gets walked out. And even as we're talking about what we should do, so if we're talking about a situation or how we should respond to a situation or what is our position in something, it should almost always include some type of reference to what we believe because that's why we do what we do. Uh, if we don't do those kind of things, it allows, it allows for what happens many times in our lives is for there to be a separation where we, we maintain and say we believe all these things but what we really do is way over here, and we don't tie them together. We, it's sort of as if they can, ex, they can exist in that kind, of like, that kind of like dichotomy. That, well, yeah, I believe this about God, and I believe this about Jesus, and I believe this about the Holy Spirit, and I believe this about who I am in Christ, but yet what I do over here is just has nothing to do with that, apparently. And uh, I think it's exactly why the letter comes out the way it does to the Ephesians. Paul says, let me write to you who you are in Christ, and then let me show you what that should look like. So... Without uh, going on about that, Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to read the first six verses this morning and uh, see whether we can work our way through them. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, Paul returns first person, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Sentence number one. Sentence number two, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Lord Jesus, once again, as we always, as I always want to do, and we presume to teach through what your inspired word has to say to us, we come to you and ask you to teach us. God, we could talk all morning long, I could talk all morning long, we could discuss all morning long all these words, but unless your Holy Spirit is here and illuminating these words to us, 
It is an activity that won't accomplish a whole lot. And quite frankly, I'm not interested in that. And we are not interested in that this morning, Father. So in the name of Jesus, we just ask both that your presence here would be instructive to us, would illuminate to us, would, would unveil things to us, and also in the name of Jesus, that the work of the enemy would be hindered and uh, precluded or not allowed to take place here in snatching that away or bringing all kinds of excuses why it can't be true or in discouraging us or in condemning us anyway. For God, you always have in mind as you bring out our shortcomings, of which there are plenty of, you always have in mind that you want us to improve or to draw closer to you and to let those things fade away, that the old man would die more and more and the new man of Christ in us would rise more and more. May it be so, in Jesus' name, amen. I've entitled my message this morning, Walk Worthy. We are now coming back to, I titled the entire series, Walk as Children of Light, and that word walk has popped up a couple of times, for you used to walk like the world did, but now you're supposed to walk in the good works that uh, God uh, created you for and Jesus redeemed you for. But that word is going to show up a few more times, and here's the first one, because this letter is, in the end, though we have spent so much time on theology and so much time on what we believe, this letter, in the end, is about how that gets walked out. Walking. Our faith is an active faith. The things we believe have to mean something. If they don't, then we don't really believe them. We can try to maintain we do, but, but we don't. If they don't come out of us in some way, uh, Jesus was pretty clear when he said that, right? He said, for what, the, 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 the fruit of the tree is evident. You don't get this kind of fruit from a tree that's this kind. It doesn't work that way. So what you believe, what, what's inside of you, was what's gonna come out of you. We all know the reality of that, by the way. Sometimes we don't like this reminder, but what happens when you hit your hammer with a thumb, for example, or when then something sudden goes wrong? What's inside of you comes out, right? It's those moments when you don't have a filter in place and you don't think, how should I say this or what should I have to say about this? It just comes out. And sometimes if you're like me, what comes out, I say, ooh, ooh, that's not what I want to have come out of me when crunch time comes. Walk worthy. So here's the first sentence. Here's the first point I want to make. There are two that I'm going to make today, two main points, of course, supported with a whole lot of stuff right in between there. But uh, the first main point I want to make today is, if I can make sure I make this move forward, verse one, I therefore, Paul says, a prisoner for the Lord urge you, I exhort you. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, by the way, because the word there is parakaleho, which you don't need to know that word necessarily, but if you would look at the noun in capitalized form, you read it in the Gospels when Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit. The paraclete, the paraclete. The one who comes alongside, that's what that means. The one who comes alongside or the one who calls you alongside, actually is what it means. That you are called not to Paul's side or to our side, but to Jesus' side, to God's side. I urge you, I'm calling you, I'm begging of you, I'm exhorting you, I'm... What other words can I put in there that, that help us understand? I'm strongly, with everything I have, the short of physically grabbing you and saying, get as close to Jesus as possible, because it's, it's not in a physical way, it's in a spiritual way. I'm, I'm calling you and urging you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you've been called. It's almost as if Paul now says in one fell swoop, listen, I told you all the blessings of Christ. 
I told you all the things about the wonderful grace that saved you from where you were to where you are now. I've explained in depth of all the ways that Jesus has broken down those barriers between you and anybody else so that all have access to God through the Holy Spirit. I've told you about all those great things. I've prayed this powerful prayer that you might realize that inside of you and now would you simply go and live that out? And that's where the next chapters are going to come in. Would you walk in a manner worthy? Walk worthy. Live out what you say you believe. Now we could go all over the Bible to talk about uh, these exhortations that come to walk worthy to the calling of which we've been called. But I'm just going to go back to one that Paul already gave us in the theology section. It's one we're well familiar with so far because we've covered it. We've read it. We've been exposed to it over and over again. Back in chapter 2, Paul says this. For we are his workmanship. We are God's workmanship. He created us. He, 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 he's, the, he's the reason we exist. We were created, or maybe better referenced in this uh, text, I, I tell you, is redeemed. We are his workmanship, redeemed in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I told you back when we covered that text that that's exactly what that meant. Listen, God created you. Therefore, he owns you. Jesus redeemed you. Therefore, he owns you a second time. And he actually had things in mind long before you existed for you to do. Good works for you to do, and you should do them. You should walk in them. Notice, again, just to be clear, so I understand, we, we, we don't lose track of the things we've been. Notice, our good works do not result in salvation. But equally notice that our salvation results in good works. We, we can't separate those two. We don't, we're not saved because of what we do, but we do good things for God in God's name and for his sake because we are saved. And that's really what this is going to be getting us to. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 are going to be talking about the ways that that works out. The, the good works that God has prepared for us beforehand that we should walk in them. And then of all the things that Paul chooses to start with, he's going to start with some real humdingers. He's going to add some what I would call fruit of the spirit kind of languages to how we do these good works. And, and, and even the very first one we're going to get to. Well, let's just jump in before we go on. He says we should be doing these good works. We should be walking out the things that God created us for. And we should do them with all humility and meekness. Now, I don't know if it's worth your time to stop for a couple of seconds when all that's going on in your head and just ponder, why did Paul start with these kind of things? Why was the first reminder he gave us that, as he says, hey, you've been called to a high calling, and the bar is way up here, and you should walk worthy of that calling, but by the way, you should do it with all humility, with low-mindedness, with, with all, all, all lowering of yourself and all meekness. You have all the power in the world inside of you in Jesus Christ, but you should do with all that power under control. Maybe he was aware of our human tendency that when we start doing good things, we start becoming pretty prideful about those good things we do. This is true on a personal level. This is true on a church level. I would argue this is true on a denominational level. When there's things that we do well, and by the way, there's a lot of things that we here, Riverview, there's a lot of things we do well, but the admonition is immediately followed. We should walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called to. It is high. We should, we should bring it down. We should elevate it, but make sure when that begins to come out of us, 
that we are doing it with humility and meekness. That we do not for a second turn around and say, look what we figured out, everybody. That we do it with humility and meekness. These two words, humility and meekness, cover two of the Beatitudes that Jesus shared. We're going to keep going back to the things that Jesus taught us because that's why Paul is talking about them here. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's a, that's a statement of humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Just two verses later, he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. These are the people, the kinds of people in whom God's blessing rests, that are approved by God, which is why we should walk out the good works that God has for us, but we do them with humility and we do them with meekness. We understand that everything good that may come out of me has nothing to do with me. It's the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of me. Every good thing that may come out of this church has nothing to do with us. It is the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. I would also like to remind you, since it has been a chief aim of Paul to get in our heads that we are the dwelling place of Christ, that Jesus dwells in us, I would remind you of Isaiah's words in Isaiah 57, 15. God said, I will dwell in the high and holy place, but also, or and also, with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. In other words, Paul is saying, remember what Isaiah said? If you want Christ to dwell in you, then you have to be lowly. You have to be humble. You have to be meek. Otherwise, he won't. So we're going to bump into a couple of these as we go through this morning. And here's the very first one. Let's forget about talking about good works until we figured out being humble and meek. Because we can do all the good things in the world, and if they don't come without humility and meekness, according to Scripture, we're not a dwelling place fit for the Holy Spirit. I think it may be to some of those kinds of people that Jesus said, on that day many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, look at all the things we did in your name. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. But let's keep going because he's not done yet. He's not done nailing us to the floor as we look at this high calling. And we, we are, we're like, we're going to walk worthy. And he says, yeah, but with humility and meekness. And then he follows up and says, you should also have a lot of patience, a lot of long suffering. You should bear with each other in love. Oh, now we're going to start getting into the area where Paul really starts us off with. The, we're going we're gonna to hang on to that for a little bit yet. But we're, we're edging into that area. Think again for just a couple of seconds. Why does Paul start, don't start off with these things? Let me, just, let me just drop a little crumb here that we're going to have to return to probably over and over again as we finish this book of Ephesians. Obviously, every one of us who reads and studies Scripture and hears even a message on Sunday morning is, though we have in mind the corporate body here, and we should have in mind the corporate body, every one of us is, is hearing those things individually, right? And the Holy Spirit is working in us, and He's sorting things through, and he's, he's moving things around in priority, and He's moving things out that shouldn't be there, and He's moving things in that should be there. And it's really, really likely that that's not all happening at the same rate of speed and with the same items in all of you at the same time. Which means we're left with the reality that we're not all 
progressing or all in the same place in our, in, our, in our obedience to Scripture and in our understanding of Scripture and in the things that the Holy Spirit is putting on her. And that gets kind of hard for us sometimes, right? Because when you all know this, I've seen this happen to you. It's happened in me. When the Lord begins to speak something about us and to us and we get, we get really excited about it and we suddenly think that everybody should have seen this amazing thing that I just saw and should respond to it in exactly the same way that I just did. And unfortunately, one of the greatest disappointments in church life often is that, you know what? When we get to those places, we kind of look around. I'm just going to be straight and honest with you because I think that's what should happen in church. We look around and we say, man, there's a whole lot of other bumps just sitting there and they don't care about this stuff. And that frustrates me. Why don't these people get it? <laughs> and Paul says, hey, guys. I want you to walk worthy of this calling that you've been called. It is so high, and the bar is high, and you should rise up to it. But I, you should see all these good things you should be doing because you're saved, and you should pour yourself into it. You shouldn't hold back one bit. And as you do that, make sure you're doing it with humility and with meekness and with a whole lot of patience, bearing with each other in love. You should love each other because you're not all going to be in the same place at the same time. There's going to be times when they, the others around you, they don't get it right. But guess what? There's times when you don't get it right either. And I sure hope when I don't get it right, because that happens. It happens far more than I wish it would. But when I don't get it right, I hope there's people around me going to church with me that will bear with me in love. They'll have patience with me and long-suffering with me. Once again, we're faced with a similar thing I just said earlier. For in 1 Corinthians 13, 3, Paul wrote, if I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but I don't have love. What does it say? I don't gain a thing. Listen, church. I say again, you can do all the good things you want to. You can do all the incredible things that you think are spelled out in the Bible. And if you don't love if you don't have love, if, if you don't love, if we don't love each other, if you don't love other people, you gain nothing. That's what the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 13 is about. What love looks like and what it's like and how it acts and how it behaves. And the necessity for that we would bear with each other, have patience and bear with each other in love. So maybe... Since, well, maybe I got to save some of this stuff for next week. But maybe just, I, it's in my head, so I'm going to say. Maybe if there's a couple of tangible prayer points we're going to start grabbing onto right away, that we can start praying for each other as a whole church, is that, yes, we would walk worthy, but we would do so with humility and meekness, and we would love each other, which is what allows us to give each other grace as the ebbs and the flows come in our walking with Jesus. He actually follows that up by sort of wrapping it together with this phrase right here, which I have to spend a little time with you. He says, I want you to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There are a number of places in Scripture that speak pretty strongly about divisiveness and what to do with people who are divisive within the church body especially. But I find few statements that are as 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 direct and put together, speaking to a group of believers, as direct and put together as this phrase right here. I also find that in many times it's not really our 
actual practice, that we are holding to these words as they are written to us, as Paul exhorts us, that we are to be eager. We are to be eager. You don't necessarily need to know the Greek word there. It's spudadzo if you want to know the word, but uh, kind of fun to say, but it doesn't really matter that much. Spudadzo, it means to uh, make haste or to make speed, to be diligent in, to make it a, a, a concerted effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit. In other words... What he's trying to say to us as church people, I think, is that we should spend a whole lot less time trying to find reasons why I don't agree with somebody in the church I go to, or I don't like what they're doing, or I'm not sure that that's right, and spend a lot more effort and energy in in thinking about how we are united together in the spirit and how I need to be part of that and represent that. And I need to be very, very careful about breaking that, about dividing that. Now, I want to be careful because clearly... There's a lot of things that God does that are about dividing. And I've shared this with a few people already. I think at some point, somewhere down the road, potentially if the Lord allows it, there's a message coming about God's wisdom and how that equals division. There's a lot of division. There's a lot of separation. God is actually very interested in separation. But he's interested in the kinds of separation that mean us from the world, us from sin, us from darkness, not us from each other, not the church from, its, from, its, from itself. Jesus himself was very clear, right? When they accused him of casting out demons by the power of Satan, he said, come on, guys. This is a bit of my paraphrase. But he said, come on, guys. A house divided against itself cannot stand. There's no way I'm casting demons out by the, by the power of Satan because that's, that's Satan coming against himself. That doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. But the principle illustrated there is a house divided will not stand. The church divided will not stand either. We are to be eager, to be diligent, to, to make an effort And I want to point out the next word that comes there, to maintain. What does it mean to maintain something? Think carefully about the word. There's a reason the words are in Scripture, right? There's a reason God, by His Holy Spirit, said, Paul, I want you to write this word down. It's not accidental. What does it mean to maintain something? To take care of? To keep it? Implied, and if we don't take time to think about this, we, it's just like all over. If we just like jump over it, but implied in the word maintain is that we, it's already there. It exists, right? It's not like we create unity. He's not asking that we create unity. He's saying it's already there. There is unity in the spirit. It's already there. The Lord, hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. It's already there but we are to maintain. Remember, he went to great lengths in chapter two to talk about the dividing wall being torn down between us because we all have access to God through Jesus Christ in one spirit. It's already there. We need to maintain it. We need to keep it. We dare not destroy it. We need to be very careful how we come against brothers and sisters in Christ because we need to be careful that we are not ignoring Paul's exhortation to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And I'm going to spend time with one more word here. It's the one towards the bottom. The bond of peace. I don't know how well you can read that up. I'm afraid you can't read it very well. I'm sorry about it if you can't. You'll have to just uh, jot it down if I, if I tell you or, or take my word for it or asked to see it later. But Paul does something very interesting. Remember how he opened up this chapter? He referred to himself again as a prisoner. Paul is a prisoner. Now, Paul was literally a prisoner, right? He was literally a prisoner. The Greek word is desmias. He was a person in bonds or in chains for Jesus. 
But I think he used that word because of this word he's going to use here. Because he says, I want you to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And he uses the same, a form of the same word, desmos, to mean bonds. But if you can see it, he put three letters in front of that word. Three letters which he has used a number of times in this letter already. Those three letters are S-U-N, meaning soon. Soon desmos. And if, I've, if you've caught anything of what I've been saying, if you remember anything of what I've been saying, you may not. That little word, soon means together with. Remember, we are made alive together with Jesus. We are raised together with Jesus. We are seated together with Jesus. And then he says, we are, uh, to get, we are citizens together with, and we are joined together, closely together with, and we are being, being built together with each other into the house of God, a place where the Holy Spirit can dwell. And now he uses this word, soon desmos, which means what? We are bound together with. I don't know if I can emphasize this strong enough. You may say you've already beaten a dead horse, Merle, and you keep moving, you've made your point. But I don't know if I can emphasize this strong enough because Paul's words are so direct and so clear. He is trying to get us to see that there, it is almost as if there were physical chains binding us together, those of us who are in Christ. We are bound together. We cannot, we cannot, we cannot say, well, I, I, I'm gonna, I, we, we can't say I'm, I'm separate from that, or I'm, I'm an individual, or I'm, we, we can't do any of those things. It makes sense, right? There's a unity to the Spirit because we are all made one in the Spirit and we together are a dwelling place for the Spirit. So it doesn't make sense for one of us to say, well, I'm, I'm not really part of that. It's probably not the time to make this point, but I'm going to say it because it, it, it needs to be said. You'll hear me say it again. I'm, I'm almost sure you will. And it's kind of a moot point because you're all sitting here in church, aka like you're not those that I'm maybe necessarily addressing. But even in this, it makes it so obvious that there is no room for a follower of Jesus Christ to say, I don't need a church. You cannot, you, you, you cannot keep these words and say, I don't need a local fellowship of believers that I'm part of. That's my opinion, and you can come argue with me if you want. I think it's fairly clear in Scripture, particularly in the ones we're reading today. We are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then that actually brings us to the second point that I think Paul really is driving us towards. And again, I would say, before I get into the point... Just take a few moments as we're going through this at some point or maybe later today or later this week if, you, if the Lord reminds you or if you're willing to be reminded by the Lord. Just take a few moments and ask yourself, why does Paul start with this? Of all the incredible points of application that Paul is making and is going to make and all the exhortations he's going to give us and all the ways that we are to walk worthy, why does he start with this one? Why does he start with this? Because the very next line out of his mouth, and I'm just going to put the first three words up there because we're going to cover the rest of them as we go through it, but there is one. And he's going to use that word one a lot, isn't he? As we read through it, if you were counting, you would have counted seven. I'm going to tell you there's actually eight in the text. One of them is not, just not the word one by itself, but it's a form of that word. We actually just covered it. It's the unity of the Spirit actually is the oneness of the Spirit. We are eager to maintain the oneness of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he uses the word one seven times. Seven times. I think Paul is trying to tell us something, right? I think he's trying to get a point across. By the way, there's a few other words repeated. I don't know if you were counting, but uh, words or form of the words, the word all is used five times in this text, and the word 
calling or form of that word calling is also actually used five times in this text in six verses. I think Paul is trying to make some emphatic statements about some things. But let's talk about this word one. He says there's one. What is there one of? And we're going to see Paul build, do what Paul always does. He builds these incredible little lists together. And even as you look at each individual thing, you have to step back and look at the whole list. There is one body, one spirit, one hope. And they, they go together. Paul is very intentional, which things he's putting together. There is one body, one spirit, one hope. Remember, Paul has made a, taken a, a fair amount of time already in, in clarifying to us that, that we together are the body of Christ. That, that, that wall of division has been broken down be, between us. Together we are the body of Christ. And together the body is the dwelling place for the spirit. He says those kind of things. He has, uh, Jesus reconciled us both in one body through the cross, killing hostility. He came and preached peace far, uh, to those near and those far off. Through him we both have access in, in, uh, in one spirit to the Father. So we, there's one body and there's one spirit and there's one hope. Now there's lots of hopes in our Christian faith. But I'm going to tell you this morning, I believe Paul is very specific about the hope that he's trying to get us to. Because he's still talking about the residence of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit in us. Personally, but quite frankly, corporately, in the body of Christ. He says the same things in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. He says, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the hope that's being offered by Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross, is that Christ can dwell in you and in us. We together are being built up into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is why he says there is one body, there is one spirit, and there is one hope. That hope is the spirit dwelling in that one body. Plain and simple. He goes on to say, the second thing is there is one Lord and one faith and one baptism. We're not talking about lots of different options here. There are not lots of different bodies. And again, I think in this kind of setting, we have to be very, we have to see these things seamlessly as they come on levels right? These are true for us as individuals. We fit inside of a church, a local church body, but it's really true for all the churches around the world for the global body of Christ. There's one body, one spirit, and one hope. It's not like the body of Christ in Africa is a different body than the body of Christ here. They don't have a different spirit than we have. They don't have a different hope than we have. They don't have a different Lord than we have. They don't have a different faith than we have. They don't have a different baptism than we have. Now, a couple of notes about that. Again, he's being very intentional. We have one Lord. There's one Savior. There's one Messiah. There's one Jesus. And we have one hope, and that is to put our trust in him. That's why he says one faith. There's only one option. You can trust in Jesus and be saved, or you can deny Jesus or not trust in him and not be saved. I think Scripture is pretty clear on that point. I don't think there's going to be any arguments. I hope there's not going to be any arguments from you. There's one Lord. There's one Messiah. There's one way to be saved. It is Jesus. There's only one name that's been given under heaven by which man must be saved, right? That's the name of Jesus Christ. There's also only one baptism. Now, I want to, be, I want to make a clarification here because this is not talking about the event baptism itself or the mode of baptism. It's talking about the result of that event. Think this way. Think of when Jesus looked at his disciples when they were grumbling and arguing and thinking about who's better and who, who gets to do what, who gets to sit where and all kinds of arguments like that. And he turns to them in Mark 10, 38 and he says, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm being baptized? You see, we all know this, right? Jesus was not asking, hey, can you get in the water like I did and, and have water poured over you? That's not what he's asking at all, is it? He's saying, are you gonna be willing to undergo what I am gonna be undergoing? before you get all 
talking about who's the greatest and who gets to sit where and all this other stuff that you got to sort out between you guys and rank everything out. Are you able to undergo the baptism? And it's in this vein that Paul means there is one Lord and there is one faith and there is one baptism. By the way, I think it's sort of inherent in these, these words here, but let's just clarify. What is that baptism? What is, what is the result of us putting our faith in Jesus according to Scripture? Suffering. Suffering. I think we should hear one of Chris's favorite verses right now when Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, how does that finish? He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's the baptism we're talking about, denying yourself, crucifying yourself, dying to yourself. That's exactly what Jesus did, by the way. That's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and saying, God, can there be any other way to do this because this is not what I want to do, yet not what I want but what you want. That's Jesus dying to himself. That was not the only moment he did that, but that was one of the crucial moments he did that. In fact, we have it spelled out in Romans 6.3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? This is what it means, I'm telling you, church, this is what it means to say there's one Lord and one faith and one baptism. Universally, there's one Jesus, one Messiah, one person who's going to save us. He is our boss. He's redeemed us. And there's one way to receive that, and that is through placing our faith in him. And there's one result of that, and that is that we die to ourselves just like Jesus did. Unequivocal, across the board, doesn't matter where you live, what your culture is, anything about it, that must be true for us to have a true salvation experience in Jesus Christ. No man can serve two masters. You hear it through and through, Scripture. That was Jesus. How about we go way back to the Old Testament? Choose you this day whom you will serve. Right? You hear it through and through. There's one body, there's one spirit, there's one hope. There's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism. And of course, he's going to end by saying, there's one God, there's one Father. Now, anybody notice about how I put these lists together? Do you notice something that Paul did? Paul did what he's great at doing. He's reminding us of theology in the middle of just giving us an application. That first line, he's talking about the Holy Spirit and the dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. The second line, he's talking about Jesus and our faith in Jesus. And the third line, he's talking about the Father, the Creator. And he's reinforcing to us that, as I said one time earlier today already, here, O Riverview, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There's three parts to him, that, or there's three pieces that we, there's, there's three expressions that we see, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We call it the Trinity. It's one of our, one of our theological beliefs, right? And Paul breaks it out to us. He says, there's one Father. He's over all. He is through all. And in my opinion, when it's correctly translated, he actually is saying he is in you all. The you is missing in the ESV. It just says in all. But I think in the original, uh, there's reason there to say that he says the word you, which means he's actually saying he, God is over all, and he is through all, and he is in you all. There's one God, and there's one Jesus who proceeded from him that we place our faith in, and there's one spirit who comes now and takes up residence in us as his body. Today, for today, we're going to stop 
because I'm going to take, uh, Lord willing anyway, I'm going to take some time with this, this same text. Well, it's going to be based on the same text. I'm going to come back next week because I think there's all kinds of ways that this foundational, beginning to talk about application of the unity in the church, not only does it do two things, well, it's going to do two things, I'm hoping anyway, Lord willing, two things. One is we're, we're planning on celebrating communion next Sunday night. I hope you saw that in the bulletin. One week from tonight, we're going to plan on celebrating communion. And communion, if it's anything, is an expression of our union with God, with Jesus, and our union with each other. So I think it's worth spending a little more time talking about unity in the church. But I also think that uh, it happens to have a lot to do with our desire to make disciples. Because if there's one thing that cripples our ability to make disciples, it is lack of unity within the church. It is our tendency to fight with each other instead of to fight for the gospel. So I think it's worth spending a little more time in more scriptures and kind of based out of here. So Lord willing, that's where we're going to go next week. So I'm going to leave some things that might have been on the table today uh, and just uh, let us uh, sit with it next week. So maybe next week, if you want to look at it, if you care about these things, I'm kind of a, I like to put things together. I'm, I'm, I think that way. If you care about this, it won't necessarily be a message out of Ephesians. But it'll be maybe more message out of our Make Disciples theme next week. But it's going to be based on what we talked about today. I would encourage you, again, I asked him this, why did Paul start with this? Why did he not start with talking about how husbands and wives should interact with each other? How did, why did he not talk about, you know, start talking about how we should you know, put on these things and put off these things or how the new character, what it should look like inside of us? Because that's all coming, right? That's all coming in chapter 4, chapter 5, how we should, how we should you know, make disciples of other people, how we should exhort people, how we should interact with as parents and, and all kinds of things we're still going to get to. Why did he start with this? So contemplate that, but I would also just invite you to, uh, I don't actually know exactly what next week's going to look like. I'll just be honest with you. I don't, I, I have no idea. But there's a, there's a real sense for me that, uh, I don't know, it's, it, again, I don't, I don't know because it could be totally different than this. But there's a real sense that there's work we have to do. If we're going to walk this stuff out, there's work we have to do. And so I just would be really, really delighted if you would be willing to spend some time with these verses and asking the Holy Spirit whether it has been a practice in your life that you have been eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace and whether you're walking in humility and meekness. And I think it's going to be a great preparation for us for, for communion. I think it's necessary. And I also just think it's going to be really good for us in as we talk about making disciples, that we recognize that if we're not bearing with each other in love and if we're not doing these things according to what Paul is talking about, <laughs> it isn't going to mean a whole lot. We're not going to be making a whole lot of disciples. Nobody wants to join a bunch of people that can't get along with each other, don't love each other, wouldn't give the shirt off their backs for each other, wouldn't lay that on their lives for each other, wouldn't bear with each other in love and say, man, I'm here for you. I'm praying for you. I love you and I want what's best for you. So if we're not willing to do that, I don't know. I don't like saying things like this because it appears a little dramatic to me, but if we're not willing to do that, then we might as well hang up all the rest of the talk about how to make disciples. God, thank you for your presence here this morning. And not even just here this morning, but God, but I, I, I want to thank you. I want to publicly thank you. I've had some of these private conversations with you, but also with a few other people here in church. But I just want to publicly thank you for the way that I sense and that we sense you stirring here in our midst. 
the way that I have seen, and not, maybe just as how it always is, doesn't matter what it would have been, it's just how it always is, but the way you're opening my eyes to how, how you have, have shaped and, and, and formed, even going back four, five, six, seven years ago and the things that we've been studying and working on and the way you've been drawing up our church and the way you've brought people to this congregation and just all kinds of things that I just, I see you keeping moving us forward and, and, and I think this year, Father, you've brought us to some, some things that you do what you always do. Are you gonna be ready to obey and walk out what I'm asking of you or are you just gonna have conversations about theology in church? And that's like, I, we, we want to have, we, we need to have discussions about what we believe. We need to understand your word and see who you are and see what, what you want from us and who we are and those kind of things. But then when we understand what you want from us, God, oh God, give us the grace to walk it out. Give us the humility. Give us the vulnerability. Give us the, give us the desire, the, the love for you, the devotion to you to simply be honest and say, this is not real in my life right now and it needs to be and I want to change it. Thank you, Father, for reminding us this morning of the great need for unity and I'm going to be honest, I, I don't know how, how all that is to be talked out about or what all that means for us and how all to, to sort of parse that correctly and keep it in line with all the rest of Scripture. But I am fairly sure there's some things there you want us to talk about, God. And so with all the fear and trepidation we might have, we look to you, Jesus, and say you are the author and perfecter of our faith. You, for the joy that was set before you, endured the cross. You scorned its shame. And so for the joy that is set before us in walking worthy of the calling to which we've been called, we also will endure what you ask us to endure, walking through uncomfortable things, being honest about things that we wish other people wouldn't know about us so that we can share in this glorious inheritance that you've given to us in Jesus Christ. Thank you. May you be glorified, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.